I'm Erin Worsham, Executive Director of the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke University. And this is Case in Point, a podcast where we explore how social ventures can leap the chasm from idea to impact at scale. For many social ventures, partnering with government is an essential part of their strategy for how to get to scale. And if you think about some of the problems or sectors that we work in in social entrepreneurship, that makes sense. Education, healthcare, economic development, government's deeply engaged in all of those issues, providing programming, resources, access to communities, and more. But we also know that for social ventures, partnering in general, and specifically with governments, can be really challenging. Fortunately, though, there are many social ventures that have been working with government over the years and have learned lessons that they're willing to share. Our guest today on Case in Point is one of those exceptional leaders, Emily Bancroft, the president of Village Reach. For those of you that are not familiar with Village Reach, their mission is to save lives and improve health by increasing access to quality health care for the most underserved communities. I'll let Emily tell you more about the work that they do, but one of the things that is important to note is that since their founding in 2001, Village Reach has been working closely with government and evolving the way that they're engaging over the years. So in today's podcast, you'll hear more about the story of Village Reach's founding and the ways in which they've engaged with governments and the tactics and tips that they have learned along the way. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with you some more about the incredible work of Village Reach, your your path to that work, and, and share some tactics and tips for our audience. So I would love to, to jump right into the conversation. And typically what we do on, on the Case in Point podcast is try to start with a little bit more of the personal. I'd love to hear more about our, uh, our guests' backgrounds and, and personal stories. So if you don't mind, let's start there. And I'd love to just ask you to tell me a little bit more about, about your background and, and your career path. I'm curious to know why you decided to dedicate yourself to social impact and how that led you to Village Reach. Sure. Thanks, Aaron. You know, it's funny, I don't talk a lot about my personal story when thinking about our work. I, I tend to talk a lot more about Village Reach's story. So it's always interesting to, to sort of reflect on my own personal path. I feel like and, we don't get to ask that question very often, right? which is why yeah, I love to exactly, do it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so when I think about, you know, where my commitment to working in, in social change comes from, you know, I think a lot, obviously, about my family, as we all do. And I came, you know, from a family that had a really strong commitment to public service and to community engagement in general, not globally per se, but really quite locally. You know, my father was a Naval Academy graduate, so I had a real strong feeling of being a public servant. Um, he did turn into a business consultant in his post-service days. Mm -hmm. And my mom was a was a basically, I would say, a community organizer extraordinaire, although I probably didn't really know that term at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think both sort of taught me early on that I had a strong responsibility to engage in my community, but also to to participate in changing the the status quo when appropriate. But I can actually pinpoint a bit of a moment, I think, when you could say maybe I started on the, the path that I'm on right now, although it wasn't a straight line path from that point on. 
And that was, you know, I think young people growing up when I when I grew up, there wasn't a lot of discussion about health as a topic outside of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think this has changed a lot. And I actually love talking to, you know, people that are in college now or, or even in high school now and, and their understanding of sort of public health and community health is very different than I think the, the understanding I had growing up. But I, you know, so I, I, I want to study medicine because that's what you did if you were interested in health. And one summer when I was in college, I went down to Haiti to volunteer. And I had gone to Haiti once when I was in high school and had um, gone with a, a friend's father who was a pediatric surgeon. And that's what got me interested in, in medicine in the first place. So I decided to go back while I was in college and, and sort of rekindle that interest or, or follow up on that interest. And I was working in a, or I was volunteering, I was not working, I didn't have a lot of skills to offer at that point, but I was volunteering in an urban clinic of Port-au-Prince. And when I was there, I had this moment where I all of a sudden realized that nothing that this clinic was doing, and it was a clinic that was, you know, severely under-resourced in terms of there were very few medicines on the shelves, you know, there were really limited qualified health workers there. And I realized that nothing that this clinic was doing was really addressing the actual challenges mm. that the community was facing. And, and it was just this, I mean, I can still think about this almost true point in time where I sort of had this realization, like this doesn't, this actually, the, the scope of the solution does not match the, the problem that's trying to be solved. And, you know, Haiti did at that time and continues to have one of the, the highest rates of income inequality in the world. And so I think this was sort of my first awakening to this idea that it was actually inequality that was a cause of poor health, not necessarily just disease. And I think that started me at that point on a real shift in both my education path and my career path towards saying, well, what are the other ways that you can address some of these issues that are not just, you know, through the practice of medicine? It really underscores the, the as we, you and I have talked about before, the sort of systems that underlie a lot of the social problems that we're working on in this space and how it's, you know, it's not a, often a simple solution. It's a, an ecosystem with a lot of actors, a lot of different criteria that are in play. And I know that, you know, Village Reach, I think, is a great example of, of a systems change focus on on healthcare challenges. And so I would I would love for you to take a few moments just to tell our audience a little bit more about Village Reach and why it was started and, and what you do. Sure. So so Village Reach was uh, started by you know someone who I really think is a is a true social entrepreneur, a Cameroonian American a man named Blaise Judas Sato. And what I love about Village Reach's story is that uh, it actually starts on a plane. Blaze was a telecommunications expert uh, working for a satellite telecommunications firm here in Seattle. So sort of one of Seattle's um, innovators in the community at the time. And this was around 98, 99. Village was founded in 2000. So Blaze sat next to Mrs. Gross Michelle on a plane. And Mrs. Gross Michelle, um, as I'm sure you know, Erin mm -hmm. is... Uh, you know, a human rights defender and a um, child rights defender and also the former first lady of Mozambique um, and then uh, was also married to Nelson Mandela. And so was the, the, was the former first lady of South Africa as well, but in her own right, very, very strong um, public figure um, and advocate. And so Blaise and Grassa sat down next to each other on a plane, got talking, hit it off. And she said, you know, you're from Cameroon. You're doing this interesting work in Seattle. Why don't you come to Mozambique? I'd really love to show you some of the challenges that we're facing in Mozambique. And mm. let's, you know, let's come up with some ideas together. 
And so um, they they took on and at the time Mozambique was not that far out of its civil war. Um, Northern Mozambique was extremely low infrastructure. Um, there really hadn't been rebuilt post-war. It looks very different now than it did then. Um, and uh, she was really struggling with, there had been a massive flood that had really cut off the north from the south. And she was struggling with the fact that there was a lot of aid and support coming into Maputo. Um, but it wasn't, there weren't great systems for getting that to the north. And so, um, so Blaze really came in at this sort of crisis moment of let's look at how we address this most humanitarian emergency situation. But what they ended up talking about was, well, how do we build systems that can actually solve some of these problems? And how do we look at some of the routine needs, not just this crisis situation? Because this problem may be very apparent right now, post-flood, but it's a problem that's happening every day. Mm -hmm. So they decided to take on vaccines Mrs. Michelle was really active in, in child health, as I said, and she knew that there were a number of vaccines in development. There was, you know, there were vaccines currently available that needed to get out to children, that it was a highly cost-effective thing to do to get children vaccinated. And Blaze, I think, saw it as a, as a business problem. You know, how do you create a system that ensures access to a product at the, at the last mile, at that final point delivery? And even our tagline, starting at the last mile, you know, comes from Blaze's telecommunications background. Of course. That the last mile, that is that last connection between to the end user, to the actual client. At the time, it was vaccines and supply chain. But, you know, since then, we sort of expanded. Think about what are some of those other challenging healthcare delivery problems that are really making it so that people do not have access to quality healthcare services. Um, So we do that by focusing on on three things now. One is still medicines and vaccine availability. So really looking at the supply chains. How do we make sure that that lack of medicine or vaccines or supplies is not a barrier to access for any individual. And then we also look at the health worker themselves in the health systems that we work with. It's usually one or two health workers in a rural clinic or a community health worker out in the community. So how do you make sure that they have the tools that they need to be as productive and effective as possible? Because they're the ones delivering that care. And then lastly, really looking at the systems that support data. Because as we say, the the last mile of healthcare delivery is the first mile of data. It's where all the information comes from. We can't we can't allocate resources appropriately. We can't you know know who needs to be reached if we don't have that information. So how do we build those data systems that really make that data and information available to everyone, from the patient, um, from the individual seeking care, all the way up to the policymaker who may be making decisions about how to allocate. Um, resources. I love that story. And, and, you know, of course, I'm sure you feel the same. I wish I could have been the you know third person in that row on the exactly. airplane. <laughs> I know. I know. I wonder. I wonder what they were thinking. Like, little did they know that something was launched that day that 20 years later would exactly. still be around. Makes me think I need to, you know, be more open to my seatmates on, on airplanes right, exactly. from now on. That's what actually a number of people said. It's like, wow, I should really have a conversation with the person sitting next to me. You just never know. And then I'd, I'd love to shift a little bit. One of the other things that, that uh, you know, themes that I've been hearing you mention throughout our conversation so far is the topic of government. So that's mm-hmm. come up in a number of your answers of partnering with government and, and scaling through government. And I know that's a hot topic for many of the social entrepreneurs yeah. and, and yeah. funders that we work with. And so I would love to take the time to pick your brain as, as our resident expert right now on government <laughs> partnering. Now, let's, let's dig in a little bit more. So tell me a little bit more, uh, you know, government clearly is a critical part of, of Village mm-hmm. Reach's strategy. Why? Why did Village yeah. Reach decide to pursue government partnerships as, as part of your core strategy and core path to scale? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't think it really started that way. And, you know, I can't speak for Blaze, obviously, mm-hmm. um, of course, directly, but 
I think when, when Village Reach started, we really were coming at it more from a, a social enterprise model, you know, that, that we would develop these healthcare delivery solutions and the government would ultimately contract with us to provide them. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that we didn't see government as important, but I don't think we saw them as our end customer. It was more of a vendor relationship it was more than anything of a else. Relationship. Yeah. And I think, but what we found, well, one <laughs> in, you know, 2000 to 2005, when this original work was happening, the government of Mozambique was not yet. Things are actually quite different now. And I, I think the model, you know, could shift a bit and, and actually already has. And I can talk about that a little bit. But, you know, at that time, that just was not where the government was either. You know, they weren't working with a lot of outsourcing. You know, healthcare delivery was not was not really being outsourced in any way. And and so even something like the supply chain, which seems like it really could be a service, was provided. You know, that just was not the the sort of mentality and focus mm-hmm. of the government at that time. And we realized that if we really wanted to scale, we couldn't create these solutions outside of the government system. And and that we instead needed to really look at, you know, how do these solutions align within the government systems and within the incentive structures that are in place there. And so. Yeah, this is where I say we sort of shifted from this buyer of services to more, you know, government as the primary client. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is that we would work with them at all levels, you know, from the national, provincial, district, down to community level to sort of determine the needs and develop solutions that fit within their context and their infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And their incentives and, and motivations. And their incentives and their mm-hmm. motivation. And we had to modify a bit of what we were doing in the supply chain work in Mozambique to make that possible. Although the fundamentals have, have generally stayed the same. We had to look at, okay, where are their government staff roles um, that could actually take on this responsibility for the vaccine distribution? You know, whereas in the original proof of concept that had been a, you know, village reach was, was running all of that. And those were village reach staff. So how do you integrate that into um, existing government roles? And so I think, you know, what I say now is it's a, it's no longer just a build first village reach as the, the first builder, but sort of a build together approach. Mm-hmm. But village reach is taking on some of that risk. And I, because that's hard for governments to, to, mm. to take on. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, I think that the other piece of this is that we work in public health systems and we're trying to reach the most underserved communities. And so I don't see a time where the government is not sort of the doer at scale, mm-hmm. right? The, the government really is responsible for ensuring that there are healthcare services for all citizens. And, I, the, you know, the private market will come in and, and provide a component of that. But there's always going to be that that piece that's not reached. And that's really where Village Reach wants to put our emphasis. And so the government is, therefore, our primary client and they're our, our primary you know, their primary scale path. It's, um, it's such an important articulation, yeah. too, of, of the relationship between Village Reach and, and the government partners, this idea of clients uh, and needing to assess their needs and, and their desires. So, you know, we, we often see social ventures that have an incredible solution to a social problem, but haven't thought through how that solution actually gets implemented. What, you know, you need somebody to use it to be a beneficiary, to be a client, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so really putting the thought into what are what are as you said the motivations and the systems that this needs to be integrated within so i love that that focus from village reach of really thinking yeah. about evolving to think about government as as client and true partner 
And then you also and mentioned I, the uh, the idea of taking on some of the risk. So you're building together, yeah, but Village Reach yeah. is taking on some of the risk. And so wanted to, to jump in on that. One of the other questions we get from social ventures is, you know, I, I love the idea of partnering with government. That sounds great. But how do I convince them that they want to partner with me? Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of that is, is as you said, being able to, to play a role of, of taking on some of the risk for them and, and being supportive of their incentives and motivations. But curious to hear your reflections on, on that question, what advice you would have to a, another social venture about how to almost sell your, your mm-hmm. organization as a partner to government. Yeah. So I think, I think my biggest advice is you have to recognize that governments are balancing you know, multiple priorities and demands in a really under-resourced system, at least in the, in the countries where we work. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that really gets me frustrated quickly is when I hear people saying, well, governments just don't care and they're not doing anything. That is so not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine if you had to do your job you know, in an environment where you tried to set your own priorities, but then a large portion of your budget was actually set by external, you know, was actually paid for by external parties who are sort of, you know, have their own priorities and and you're trying to balance all of that while knowing what it is that you need to do, you know, to ensure that that there's quality health access um, for your citizens. And But you're sort of in this environment where you're having to, to balance all these different interests. And so, I think governments, you know, individuals in governments know what needs to happen and they want that change to happen, Mm -hmm. but they also have to work within these constraints. And so I I think this role of being a de-risker is really important where a a social entrepreneur or social enterprise or, um, you know, social change focused organization can um, carve out sort of a piece and say, let me, let me try to you know, let me see what change we can create here. But I understand what sort of your needs and constraints are as a government. And so let me try to show how that's going to fit into actually addressing your needs and constraints. I think a lot of times we come with our own perspective on what we think needs to happen. And mm-hmm. and it has to be more of that co-creation, right? It has to be a bit of give and take on, you know, sort of hearing what others have to say about why they might see the need a little bit differently and trying to figure out what's, what's underneath that. And I think within that, you maybe find a, you know, a different, a different approach. And, and one example I could give is when you're doing a supply chain intervention, like let's stick with vaccines because that's sort of an, it's the easiest um, pathway, I think, to understanding, you know, giving a vaccine leads to hopefully, you know, leads to increase in, in um, child vaccination rates. Mm-hmm. And so we would often hear our government partners talk about, well, you know, we, we need to be talking about coverage and we'd say, well, we're talking about supply. And it was almost this sort of like, we couldn't, we weren't adapting our language and thinking and data Mm. and contribution to help them solve their problem. And so it was a bit of a disconnect because Although the although we under you know we were trying to say well this is a prerequisite to getting to coverage they were saying but but you know we're held accountable to this coverage number and and instead of sort of hearing that and saying okay how do we work together to to tell that story and build that story we were sort of like well here's you know yeah but but here's the mm-hmm. the data on availability and look you have availability you know so it's just sort of that that coming together and and maybe shifting the approach a bit you know based on what true understanding of the government's priorities and why. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that I don't always see that I think we 
that we've realized is so important to our work and that I would really encourage others to recognize early on too is this issue of cost. So if you aren't transparent about cost, if you aren't making costing a key part of your evaluation methodology right from the get-go, and, and you know, you have to be honest, like, hey, costs are, are going to be high at the start, but, you know, here's how we think we can get to something that's more reasonable. It is better to say that than to try to cover that up. And so we've always, we learned pretty quickly after we presented our first um, set of impact results to the government in Mozambique, and they said, that's great, but anybody could do that with enough money, mm. that we hadn't really taken into account one of the biggest factors, which was, that, you know, yes, I would love to see that sort of change. I'd love to implement that. But if I can't, if I don't feel like I can figure out how to afford it, you're, you're not speaking my language. Right. Um, you're not giving so me a solution now, that is feasible in the context. And... Yeah. And so we now have built cost in early. And when we're working, you know, sometimes Village Ridge works with other um, partners who maybe have a solution that, that, that we believe could be high impact. And we're trying to help them test it in, in last mile environments. And, you know, having that conversation with them early on too, to be like, you've got to be transparent about cost. Like that's the one thing that's going to either make or break this work, but not everybody's comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's a place where I feel like we learned a lot early on and have tried to, to really shift. Yeah. You learn that approach. you can, you can avoid that for a while, but eventually, you know, that conversation about cost is going to happen. And so you yeah. might as well bring that up front and be very transparent yeah. about it. And when I think mm-hmm. about some of our, you know, work that's sort of failed or not moved forward or not, you know, not ultimately something that was maybe promising did, was not able to get on that pathway to scale. It's often because, you know, the, the costing piece either, you know, the solution just was not, there was no way to argue its cost effectiveness or the partners were not willing to be transparent about those costs. And that was enough to just have the government say, you know what, we're not interested in, in mm-hmm. moving forward with this at mm-hmm. this point. That's great. It's such helpful advice for organizations as they're thinking about approaching government, you know, this role of, of the social venture as, as de-risking solutions and being able to test and innovate and try things. And, and, yeah, and show that there's demand right, yeah, for show, that. Show there's demand, show there's, there's yeah. evidence of impact, of quality, et cetera. But that evidence as well needs to be in a, in a language and, and on the terms that that government partner is, is actually matters to them, as, as you were giving that example. So learning how to co-create together and, and really understand the, the motivations, the data needed, the, the talking points, et cetera. Yeah. And then finally, yeah. that last point about, about cost uh, transparency at the beginning and throughout. And it's you know, something that is just going, especially, as you said, in the context in which Village Reach is working, that will always be a constraint of government being able to pick up these solutions and adopt them. And so, you know, keeping that front and center and, and really driving costs down in a way that can be made sustainable within a government system is, is so important. Even though we struggle often in our sector to, to talk about that, it's not, it's not our favorite topic, right? We want to no. talk about impact and, and how we can solve problems, not about trying to cut costs as much as possible to do so. So, you know, on that note, actually, it's, it's uh, you know, interesting to think about the, you know, engagement with, with government partners and some of the inherent sort of tensions uh, or, you know, between costs and impact, et cetera, and, mm-hmm. and trade-offs that you have to make as you're working with, with any partners, but in this, in this instance with, with government in particular. You know, we've talked a little bit about this before. I, I would love to have you share a little sure. bit about your thinking about the trade-offs of partnering with government. Yeah. I think for all of us, anybody doing this work, I think you want to have three, there are three things you're looking for. You're looking for impact, you're looking for scale, and you're looking for sustainability. And, you know, that term sustainability 
is a tough one because I think when you're working in a lower resource environment, I think you have to recognize that sustainability maybe isn't just about financial sustainability, but sort of about sustainability of change, you know, of which the financing of that is one thing, but there's also sort of will and, and attitudes as well. But ideally you want all three of those things. And I think one of the most interesting conversations I was part of at Village Reach early on was when we went to start scaling up in Mozambique, where the government had sort of said, okay, you know, let's, this, we agree that this model is really promising. We want to look at how to better integrate it into our systems, though. So let's start a scale up path in a few provinces, looking at implementing it a bit differently than you did in, in the original pilot province. And um, so we had this discussion what do we, what approach do we want to take? And we actually sat down and said, okay, we do not believe at this point in time that we can get impact scale and sustainability all at the same time. So what are we willing to compromise on in order to move this forward? And are we willing to compromise? And we actually decided at that point in time that, you know, we thought that working through the government systems, you know, we could get scale. We thought we had more promise of getting sustainability if we could really change behaviors and practices within the government. But we recognized that we probably wouldn't get exactly the same impact that we had during the proof of concept where we controlled all the in, inputs and outputs mm-hmm. of the work. And, you know, that was a that was like a philosophical discussion that we had to sit down and have and then say, OK, well, let's we think we should do this, though. And then we should think we, we need to work on over time how we help the government you know, build the impact back up so that hopefully it's at or very close to the level that it was during the pilot. And I was just talking to our Mozambique country director about this when I was in Mozambique a couple of weeks ago and, you know, she said, what I want everyone to understand is that when you do this sort of transition and hand over to government, you know, you're sort of operating at a certain level, you've got to expect there's going to be a bit of a dive. Things are going to be a little bit messy at first. Mm-hmm. New systems and processes need to be figured out. But then the trick is, you know, what is that acceptable level of performance and, and how long does it take you to get back there to sort of support the government to get back there? When you're no longer driving, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're behind the scenes saying, how can we help? But you guys need to figure this out. And, you know, in Mozambique, she found it took about a year and a half from when we stopped. We'd already moved to sort of a cost sharing model in our scale up. But then we went to a model where we actually stopped paying for distributions at all, even in the cost sharing. So the government was bearing the cost. And it took about a year and a half, you know, talking to stakeholders in Mozambique, talking to the government, for them to figure out their own systems to actually get that, that money sort of flowing the way that it needed to be flowing. So that's a, that's a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And a, and a hard right. pill to swallow, I think, for a, a, for a social venture to, to say we are okay, at least in the short Absolutely. term, of, of losing some some impact, of losing some quality, uh, because we know that in the longer term, we'll be able to get to, to the other parts of that trade-off. To, we'll get to scale, we'll get to sustainability, and then eventually get the impact up as, as far as we can. Um, Very hard. And you stuff. need really understanding. I mean, so then, you know, it's interesting being in Mozambique and having that conversation and sort of quantifying a bit of the time mm-hmm. that it took and then going to Malawi and talking to our team there about the transition that's coming up with Health Center by Phone and saying, you guys, it, we need to be ready for this, right? We need to be ready mm-hmm. for this and we need to start preparing the partners and all of the the ministry, you know, everybody that's so invested in this work, start preparing them now for the fact that this is going to happen and it's going to be okay. And we're going to figure it out and we're going to work with the government to, to get the sort of get the indicators back up again. But that will probably take a little bit of time mm-hmm. because everybody's going to be figuring out a new way of doing work. And whenever there's disruption, there's some impact on that, mm-hmm. but that that's okay. And that's a part of the process. I think that's the piece that 
you know, we need to keep educating mm-hmm. others about and not pretending that we're going to flip the switch. And it's going to be perfect a, from day one. Right? And it's going to mm-hmm. be perfect from day one because then everybody's going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, reflecting on you talking about internal stakeholders, you know, your different country teams and talking about the process, but <laughs> our own staff. Right? Yeah. And thinking not, not only about your own staff, but also about your board members or funders. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and those, you know, probably are some tough conversations. I, I'm curious if you, if you have any sort of rules of thumb that you think of it village reach of how long is okay for it to take to get back up to quality or, or how how much loss of impact is is a, all right for us to swallow in mm-hmm. the short term you know do you have kind of those tripwires in your head of if it gets too low on impact or if it takes too long then we need to to reshift our thinking yeah I, we don't have it it's not perfect right and i think this is actually a lot of what we're trying to figure out right now where our work has gotten sophisticated enough and there are other, you know, it's not just us. There are others in the sectors dealing with this question. How can we come together and, and try to answer some of those questions? I know our colleagues in the, I, I talk to colleagues all the time that are facing this sort of same question in their own work. And I think it does depend on what the solution is, right? Because, I mean, obviously anything where somebody's life is at stake, you know, I mean, there are, there are places where quality cannot decline. Mm -hmm. It's just not acceptable. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm talking about sort of changing systems where there are emergency ways that vaccines can get out. They're just not cost effective and they're, they're not the the way that we want the system to run. But if there's a problem, problems can be solved, right. There problems can be addressed. Mm -hmm. And it's about like, how do you build up that system? So you don't have those, those problems. So I think part of it comes down to, I think we haven't always done a good job of stepping back and saying, what are we willing to accept Mm -hmm. based on this particular intervention or this particular solution? The problem is trying to solve what is an acceptable decline Mm -hmm. and what's an acceptable sort of amount of time and success. I would say the year and a half in Mozambique was a little longer than we had hoped. Mm -hmm. And I think retrospectively, we probably could have support. Well, I think we were there supporting them all along. Part of it is budget cycles. Mm. You know, you've got annual budget cycles. And so if you miss or if you sort of, you need to get through that whole cycle in order to make sure that sort of the next year, the money's still going to be there for the ministry to keep doing this service in the way that they're doing it. And you can't, there's nothing you can do to speed that cycle up, mm-hmm. right? So it sort of took going through two of those cycles before, right. um, you know, the ministry would say, we now have this down, we get it, we get how to budget for it, we get how to, you know, um, manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think we have to be realistic that if you're dealing with something where there is a, a sort of budgetary component um, within a, a government entity, then you know budget cycles are, are what they are. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good um, good questions for for social ventures to ask and understand those uh, processes in order to make their own determinations. As you said, it's very unique with the particular problem with the particular context. But to be able to yeah. gather that type of information but to, to have know that discussion, mm-hmm. yeah, and to set those metrics. And so that's what we're trying to do right now mm-hmm. with the health center by phone work is be more deliberate about you know recognizing there will be this this sort of period of the, you know, disruption and then mm-hmm. therefore the, you know, potential changes in, in how the service is delivered temporarily. So let's set up front what we think the, the reasonable amount of time is and let's agree on that, the ministry as well. Have that proactive conversation yeah. on, on that front. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So, so let me, you know, building on that, I, I would love some and more tactical advice mm-hmm. from from you. Uh, you know, there are many organizations that are thinking about this idea of transitioning to government and having government really adopt solutions. But you know, it's hard to do as as we've been talking about throughout this conversation. So, are there mm-hmm. are there a couple of quick kind of tips or or advice that you would give to other ventures about how to 
do that transition and, and government adoption successfully? Mm-hmm. Sure. If I think about what worked, what we've seen work, mm-hmm. and then what we're starting now try to put in place. I mean, one is determining sort of where, so again, our transitions often are to the Ministry of Health or, or with the Ministry of Health. Mm-hmm. So determining who the champions are within the scaling partner that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And and those those champions might actually shift and change over time, and that's okay. And a specific example of that with the health center by phone example is that you know, it started as a maternal child health intervention, and it was actually our the head of the reproductive health department directorate in Malawi who actually said at some point, you know what, this isn't going to scale if it sits in reproductive health. We actually need to go after planning, mm-hmm. and we really need planning to be the champion of this. Interesting. So she actually led that process of getting planning engaged, and then planning took over. And somebody at the Department of Planning was designated as our point person. And they're the ones that build up the steering committee within the Ministry of Health because they were, you know, seen as sort of more, that's what they do. You know, they pull together all the different directorates. They also really got the MOU put together around what would Village Reach do? What would the government do? So these are actually all part of the tactics as well. Mm -hmm. And then they, at some point, once the vision was really clear within the ministry, then actually the clinical services department said, you know what, I actually really think this sits with us. Because this is really, you know, a part of our, our clinical service delivery. So we'd like to take this over now. So it's it's so we sort of now have these three champions that have all played very different roles, but have all been really critical to getting the, the intervention where it is right now. So and I love that idea of, of thinking about those champions in in a broader way. So, you know, your your gut reaction, of course, is we do health solutions, so let's work with the Ministry of Health, but to think outside of that of of Absolutely. planning yeah, or have, finance, yeah. et cetera. And finance is on the um, you know, finance is also on the steering committee, which is really critical. Mm. Uh, because yeah, you, mm-hmm. and we won't get much yes, done. If ab- we're not, absolutely. Uh, Enough said on finance with, is critical. Finance, exactly, exactly. But that, you know, but that's a gap for a lot of, you know, that's mm-hmm. a, something that a lot of people struggle with is how do you get both sort of finance and health or finance mm-hmm. and whatever other ministry right. that you're working with on board. You know, we also have really started trying to do a better job defining what the actual solution is that is going mm-hmm. to be transferred. And we've started... I credit a lot of this as as bringing in sort of a business operations person onto our team a few years ago. And it's not that our teams didn't know what they were doing. They absolutely knew what they were doing on a daily basis. But what we maybe weren't doing as good of a job about was actually capturing that in Mm -hmm. a way that as we were working side by side with others, you know, our our scale partners, that we were actually not just saying learn by watching and and seeing what we do, but actually, you know, here's the, the sort of, here's what the the different components of the solution organized in a way that is consistent that says, here's what you have to do on a sort of regular basis. That's, that's managerial in nature. You know, here are the enabling factors that need to be in place. And, and, and here's who the type of person that needs to do these things, or, or let's at least talk about, let's use this then to talk about, okay, who's going to do this in the future? Like right now, this person is doing it, you know, who, as we transition is going to do this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then what do they need to know and understand about this aspect of the solution? So it's being much more comprehensive and much more disciplined, you know, about thinking about what it is that is actually in this solution. What is actually, what are the components of it and getting that documented. And, and I, I hate to use the word um, toolkit. Right. Because that's a horrible, uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of hard. It sounds so like, Oh, if I just check these things off, but it, but it, you know, it's a, it's like an operations manual, mm-hmm. right? 
Well, and I love the idea of a toolkit or an operations manual that that is in part about, as you said, documenting the solution and breaking it down into steps and what needs to happen at each point in time. But also hearing you talk about the, the people side of it, of, of uh, you know, yes, it's about a process and, and a breakdown of a solution, but also about who are the people that need to do each part, what are the skills they need, how much time will that take? So really thinking much, much more holistically about yeah. that operations manual and, and that transition toolkit. So it's not just here's 10 steps you know, figure out how to make it happen, but here's 10 steps and the people that need to be involved at each one of those steps, Exactly, et exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have, so we have these sort of checklists of, okay, so for the person taking this piece over, you know, what are the things that ideally they need to learn? And, and then, you know, how do we sort of work side by side with them to make sure that they've got that and then we can back off. Mm-hmm. So we sort of can also identify then when can we start to back, back out. So that, that piece, I think, has been really powerful. And I, it was exciting when I was in Malawi because we've done this with a couple of our teams. And we have another piece of work in Malawi that's highly successful in Malawi and actually scaled very quickly because it was so uh, aligned, I think, with everybody's interests, government and donor, quite honestly, interests um, at the time. And it's a pharmacy assistant training program. But, you know, we never did this toolkit for that for that program. And, and the team actually, after seeing this being done for Health Center by Phone, said, oh, we actually want to go back and do this for mm. the pharmacy assistant training program because we think it'll be really helpful for these new schools that are scaling up to to train more pharmacy assistants. And we'd really like to see other countries doing this. And we think this would be a really helpful tool. So so now we've got our teams, you know, sort of saying, oh, I'll, I'll wait, I want to do this for my, you know, mm-hmm. for the work I'm doing. So I think that's been a really useful internal and external tool and has allowed us to have conversations that are much more targeted about these transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned MOUs uh, mm. seems basic, but I actually, it took a lot of work for us to get an MOU in place with the Ministry of Health around the um, around the transitions that we've done. You know, a really good MOU needs to go through a lot of departments. In Malawi, ours had to be signed off by the Justice Department, hmm. which meant that, you know, this was a, this was not a, uh, you know, one month process. It was probably about a, almost a year process. Oh, interesting. Okay. And it really outlines, here's what Village Reach is doing now. Here's what the government's doing now. Here's the vision of where we're headed. You know, here are some of the key dates and triggers and, and things that, you know, each party has agreed to do. And here's how we'll support each other in that. And so getting alignment on that with a broad steering committee within the ministry, which, you know, meets regularly. So they sort of led, you know, led that, that MOU development, but then getting it signed off by all the the critical parties within the Ministry of Health and outside of the Ministry of Health. So that that was a very powerful tool and a really important tool and one that took much longer than I realized it was going to take. It's, it's nice to have a timeline um, on that to say, like, that took a yeah. year in that particular instance because I don't think anybody yes. allocates that much time, things. right? But it, it comes back to your, your first yeah. point as well about right. determining <laughs> champions and then, you know, being able to flex as, as they change because mm-hmm. if having that MOU in place now, I'm sure there's much more confidence about the sustainability of the program and even if some of the individual actors change, you now have a well-documented we MOU exactly. in place. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That's- and then the the last tool that I'd mentioned, which I know a number of other people use too, which has just been critical for us through um, all of our transition processes, has been secondments to mm-hmm. government. So because the transition itself is an added burden of work, so I think you want to be careful that mm-hmm. you're not just augmenting 
fear that secondments are being used to augment day-to-day work because then they can never go away. That's a different model. But in this case, it's the, we recognize that there is a bunch of work getting that MOU, getting it run around to all the different departments, you know, to the justice department. Like there's just a, a body of administrative work that needs to happen. Um, and so how can we support the ministry in the ways that we can mm-hmm. to give them some of that capacity to do that? And so even when I was in my meetings with the ministry, when I was just in, in Malawi and, and in Mozambique as well, you know, in, in all my meetings that our secundis were referenced, right? Well, you know, this has been incredibly helpful because mm-hmm. we, we come up with an action plan and then I can sort of say, you know, to appeal or I can say to Timoteo, okay, great. We've come up with an action plan. Can you follow up on these things? Right. And, and you know, that's needed. Um, and it shouldn't be a role that's never going to go away, but I think it's a role that's really critical um, in these transitions. And, and it's important advice. I mean, I think we, we do talk a lot about secondments in, in this space, um, but important to make that distinction of, of there's the idea of secondments for just sort of extra capacity for the partner organization. But what you're talking about is really a secondment to help facilitate the transition. So to be there to do the MOUs, to help, you know, create and perfect the operations manual or the transition toolkit, whatever whatever term we decided we were going right, to use there, right. and, and to really put the processes and systems in place so that there's a, a foundation for success moving forward once that secundee is, is no longer there. So I love that, you know, the, the idea of secondments is not new, but, but a different kind of take on what that role should be for that employee in that transition process, I think is really powerful. But in our podcast, we always like like to end with a little bit of a, a lightning round. So first one, tell me about how you define success. And, and I'm talking here more success personally, not for Village Reach per se, but but how do you think about defining success in your own life? Sure. For me, a big part of it is loving what I do mm. and loving the, the people with whom I get to engage on a regular basis. And, and being part of something where I think you can celebrate success, even if those successes are really small, on that sort of long journey of change. So being part of a small component of something, of something bigger, and then being able to have some fun and laugh along the way. <laughs> I love it. That's great. All right. Second question. What book has most influenced your life? This is a tough one. <laughs> and again, in this in this day, age, my, it doesn't have to be a book. Maybe it's a podcast. You don't have to say case in points, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm a fairy commuter now, so some podcasts are actually great for that. No, I, I would actually go back to that sort of story I told at the beginning, and you know, one of the books I read after I after my Haiti trip that I mentioned at the very beginning mm-hmm. was um, "The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down," mm. which is a sort of medical anthropology book about the Hmong community and and. Uh, it was part of that that sort of enlightenment time, right? Of just again a whole different world opening up to me of of you know understanding human behavior. I think in a in a really different way and in a very cross cultural way that just wasn't part of my my growing up for various reasons. Mm, okay, great. And then final question: I'd love to know what gives you hope. I think actually having these conversations <laughs> about systems change. I mean, I feel like even when I started doing this work, nobody wanted to talk about systems. Mm. And, and so just hearing the dialogue, talking to my colleagues, talking to others in the field and hearing how they are really thinking critically and systemically about what we're trying to do. It's actually pretty exciting. And yeah. I think I think that 
that is a change um, from, mm-hmm. from when I started doing this work and, and a really um, exciting change. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. It's a, great to be having those conversations and to be able from, from our role here at Case to be able to, to bear witness to organizations like Village Reach that are not only having the conversation, but doing the hard work to figure out how to change systems and really disrupt status quos in, in ways that will uh, absolutely change the lives of, of people around the world. Uh, so just a thrill, as always, to have the chance to speak with you and, and learn more from your experience and, and share the great work of Village Reach. So uh, just a big thank you, Emily, for joining us today Thanks, and sharing your insights. Now, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Government partnerships, as we spoke about in this episode, can be so powerful, but are challenging and time-consuming. And so I loved getting to hear from Emily about Village Reach's story of evolving with government partnerships over time, beginning with more of that vendor or vendee relationship, and then realizing that they needed to actually co-create programs together with government. And in the process of co-creating, Village Reach's advice was to adapt to the government's needs, shift language, focus from the outset on not just impact, but also the costs of interventions, and to really play a role of de-risking solutions for government. Emily also offered some really important cautions about working with government, that there are often trade-offs between impact and scale and sustainability and that sometimes working with government means that one of those aspects might get less. So there might be, for example, a short-term loss in quality, but Emily did have some tips to share on making sure that quality was as high as possible. Identifying champions, developing MOUs, creating toolkits, using secondments. There were so many really tactical pieces of advice that Emily shared. And I know our audience appreciates both the story of Village Reach, but also the tips and tricks that will help all of you save time and avoid mistakes as you work to partner with government and achieve lasting social change. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and the conversations that we've been having on Case in Point. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, help us spread the word by leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.